We come tonight to Philippians chapter 1 and we study, we're going to be studying this evening verses 12 to 18. Verses 12 to 18. And we see in these verses joy in the advance of the gospel. Or an alternative title, how will the gospel advance? How will the gospel advance? On the 20th of February 1915, Winston Churchill, who was First Lord of the Admiralty at the time, uh, Churchill formed a new committee to explore the possibility of creating a new weapon that would revolutionise the battlefield. The First World War had been dragging on for six months, with the two sides uh, stuck in trench warfare on the Western Front in France. Any advance by cavalry or by soldiers on foot getting up out of their trenches and running into no man's land, it was completely pointless. Uh, The line had hardly moved uh, in all the time the war was raging. The enemy could pick you off one by one with their machine guns if you got up out of your trench and headed across no man's land. Trench warfare was getting the Allies nowhere. But Churchill had been speaking to some men in the Royal Navy who had been speculating together about the possibility of a new weapon, an armoured car, completely bulletproof, that could drive straight over trenches and barbed wire and no man's land and allow the soldiers to simply march in behind. By 1918, as a result of this committee called the Land Ship Committee, uh, this new weapon was ready and it was called the tank. And by the end of the First World War, hundreds of tanks were used by the Allies in the last few months of the war to push the German forces further and further back. And eventually the Germans surrendered, of course, in November 1918. What's any of that got to do with Philippians, you might be wondering? Well, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, Paul uses a military word to describe the, the, the message of Jesus spreading in Rome. Look what he says, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Advance the gospel. And the word there for advance, it means to blaze a trail, uh, to make forward progress, to make a change for the better. The tank changed the face of the First World War. It allowed the, enemy, or the Allies to advance in a way that they hadn't been able to until that point. And similarly, Paul says that God has been working in his life, even in the unattractive and undesired circumstances of his life, to advance the cause of the gospel, to press forward the kingdom of God. Look what he says at the end of our passage, uh, verse 18. He says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul found joy. He rejoiced in the advance of the gospel. That was what excited him and encouraged him and motivated him, even as he languished a prisoner in Rome. Often we lack joy in our lives, not just Non-Christians, but sometimes Christians as well, lack joy. And quite often, if we're honest, the reason is that our lives are focused upon ourselves. What's my agenda for this week? When do I get some me time? Uh, When's the next exciting thing going to happen in my life? Paul looked at things differently. He rejoiced by focusing on the advance of the gospel. And from what Paul says to the Philippians, we can see three ways 
tonight in which the gospel advances. So let's notice first of all that the gospel advances through unexpected opportunities. The gospel advances through unexpected opportunities. Uh, Again verse 12. I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What has happened to me. Now of course we don't know every single thing that had happened to Paul. Up until this point in his life. But we do know a lot of the major things that had happened to him. Again it's providential that we, we were going through Acts and, and now we come to Philippians. Hopefully Acts is still uh, somewhat fresh in our minds. Uh, the latter chapters of Acts tell us what happened to Paul in the months and years immediately before he wrote this letter. Uh, attacked by the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, shunted around from pillar to post in front of all those silly Roman governors. Shipwrecked at sea, eventually brought into Rome, only to be left waiting as a prisoner. All of that took up about three or four years of Paul's life. And for all that time, he's been wearing chains. No more churches planted, no more missionary journeys completed. He's been separated from the people he had evangelized and pastored, like the people he's writing to in Philippi. And you would think in many ways, what a negative set of circumstances. And the, and the Philippians were distraught. Part of the reason Paul's writing this letter is because he knew they were concerned about him. What are we going to do without Paul? How much longer is he going to be a prisoner? What if he's never released by the emperor? Were they perhaps thinking, why has God allowed this to happen? Paul's one of the church's le- best leaders, best evangelists. Why has God left them? A prisoner in Rome. But what does Paul say? What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Notice he says there, it's really served. Paul's not pretending that everything that has happened to him has been all good. As as some people say today, it's all good. Paul's not saying, oh, it's all been good. He's not pretending that he's enjoyed it or even expected all of it. But what he's saying is that God has been using it for his purposes. And again we saw that in Acts. How God used the hatred of the Jews in Jerusalem to get Paul to Rome. And how he used Paul's shipwreck to get the gospel onto that little island of Malta. And Paul can still see God using his circumstances. Look at verse 13. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard And to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard. The imperial guard was made up of 9,000 Roman soldiers. A crack team of elite warriors. This was Caesar's personal bodyguard. And among the duties of these men. They would have had to take turns being chained to Paul. And they would have worked on shifts. But at some point 24-7 there was a. A soldier, maybe two soldiers, guarding Paul. What do you think Paul talked to them about? Remember, he's a Roman citizen, so they're not allowed to abuse him or kill him. He has his rights. Paul could talk as much as he wanted. What do you think he talked about to the men that he was chained to night and day? He talked to them about the gospel. And when people came to see Paul, people who were curious as to what it was that Paul believed, or people who wanted to hear Paul explain the Old Testament scriptures, again, the soldiers 
They would have had no choice but to listen. And that's even mentioned in Acts 28. Even if they weren't interested in the gospel, they heard about it from Paul. Paul was Rome's captive, but he had a captive Roman audience. And he says that throughout the imperial guard, it's it's unlikely that 9,000 different men were assigned to Paul. But because of the ones that were assigned to him, word spread. He says throughout the imperial guard and to all the rest, Caesar's household perhaps, anyone who came to see him, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ was shared. Because Paul believed so strongly in the sovereignty of God, friends, he did not see his imprisonment as time wasted. He saw it as time invested. Verse 13, my imprisonment is for Christ. Now Paul was suffering, let's not ignore that. Uh, Just because he still had the freedom to preach the gospel, it doesn't mean that everything in his life was the way he, he might have liked But the point is that he saw it all as worthwhile, an unexpected opportunity to proclaim Christ. And if he had to suffer for it, well, it only reminded him of the union he had with a saviour who had suffered even more for Paul. He says in verse 16, I am put here for the defence of the gospel. Again, that's military language. This is, he's saying here, this is the position that I've been given on the battlefield. By my commander-in-chief, my position is I'm here for the defense of the gospel and I'm going to make the most of it. Sometimes we tell ourselves that we'd be so much more used to God if only he would put us somewhere else. If he put us where we wanted to be, if he gave us the things that we wanted to have, maybe the gifts that we wish we had. Maybe we think there's no opportunity for me to be a gospel witness in this job. Or in this family. Or with my gifts. My gifts aren't good enough. Maybe we don't think we have any gifts to use. What is there for me to do to serve in the kingdom? Friends, don't miss the opportunities you have to advance the gospel. Be faithful where God has placed you. He doesn't make any mistakes. See your job, your colleagues, your gifts as the position that God has given you. On the battlefield, the place where your commander-in-chief wants you to serve and get on with serving him there. It's remarkable here. Notice Paul doesn't say to the Philippians, I want you to know that despite what has happened to me, God has advanced the gospel. He doesn't say that. He says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The chains have advanced the gospel. The, 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 the prison or the house arrest has advanced the gospel. Don't waste your suffering. Don't don't waste your limitations. Don't waste opportunities to advance the gospel. It's not often I learn much about the life story of the commentators that I read. Uh, One of the best commentaries on Philippians has been written by a man named P.T. O'Brien. And I was learning this week a little about his life. Uh, Neither of his parents were Christian. This man is a It's an incredible commentary in terms of this man's grasp of the Greek language. Neither of his parents were Christians when he was born. But his mother had a neighbour, a simple lady with a sincere faith in Christ. And this lady had an incurable disease. She suffered terribly day after day. But she, she never complained. And through her witness, 
P.T. O'Brien's mother came to faith. She became a Christian. And because this man's mother became a Christian, later on O'Brien himself became a Christian. And he went to Bible college and he ended up getting a PhD. And later he became a missionary in India. And after that he went to Australia and worked in a Bible college training up men who were going to become uh, gospel ministers and other men and women who were going to go to the mission field. And then he eventually wrote several fantastic Bible commentaries. Don Carson, who was telling this story, he says, Suppose you had said to that suffering woman, If you will glorify Christ in your suffering, then as a consequence, Indians will be converted, pastors will be trained, and countless sermons, including a sermon in Dervik, will be preached. Will you now suffer faithfully every day? That woman would have said, of course. And yet she didn't have to be told. She did suffer faithfully and witness faithfully. We're never told what the full outcome of our sufferings might be. But like that lady, God will give us the faith and the strength to suffer well. And he can and will advance the gospel through us. Sabbath school teachers, mums and dads, next door neighbours, students, colleagues. Who knows what God might do through your witness. Here's a lady that we don't even know her name. She's probably never heard of Dervik, but Dervik is benefiting from her witness tonight, hopefully. What is it for you? What are your circumstances? Is it an unwanted illness? Is it a difficult colleague? Is it a needy person that takes up a lot of your time? Is it is it your turn on youth club? Is it your turn to lead CY? Are you thinking about the, the time and energy that has taken to, to bring up your children in the ways of the Lord? What if it's only in your life so that God would advance the gospel? The gospel will advance through unexpected opportunities. Secondly, the gospel advances through emboldened believers. The gospel advances through emboldened believers. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul only ever talks about his sufferings in this passage in a positive way. He only mentions, he only mentions his sufferings to share the good that has come through them. If I was taken away from you, if I was in prison for preaching and I wrote a letter to you, I think I would probably want to make sure you knew just how bad it was. I'd want you to know the tiny dimensions of my prison cell. I'd want you to know how bad the food was, how uncomfortable the bed was. Uh, but Paul is not looking for pity here. He only says what good his sufferings have done. And one of the good things that has happened is that ordinary Christians in Rome have become bolder in their gospel witness. The word Paul uses here for boldness has the sense of summoning up the courage or daring to do something. Uh, children sometimes dare each other to do something dangerous or stupid like try and climb a drain pipe and get onto the roof or jump off a high rock into the sea or something. And maybe the person who has been dared to do it takes a few minutes to, to try and summon up the courage and everyone else starts saying, you know, what are you waiting for? Hurry up, just do it. But before they can do it, they have to summon the courage. 
Paul says here that some of the believers in Rome, uh, learning of his example, they've, they've, they've finally summoned up the courage. They've, they've dared to do it, to be gospel witnesses. He says here, most of the brothers, uh, and most likely the people he's talking about there are just Christians in general. Uh, all through his letters, Paul refers to Christians generally as brothers or brothers and sisters in some instances. So I, I think it's unlikely that he's just talking about preachers or pastors here. Though, of course, they would have been included. But I think he's talking about Christians in general. What a challenging thought that is. That ordinary men and women in Rome, ordinary Christians, had summoned the courage to be bold gospel witnesses. One writer says, Suddenly the instinct of self-preservation began to wither in them. A new fearlessness took over. They thought, well, if Paul can share the gospel with the imperial guard, if Paul can share the gospel a prisoner, why can't I share the gospel with my co-worker or my next door neighbor? The gospel spread and the church was established in those early days, friends, not just by men like Peter or Paul or John, but by ordinary men and women emboldened to proclaim the gospel. Pulpits were not the only places to find preachers. You could have found preachers in the marketplaces and in the streets and in the banks and in the schools. The Christians spurred each other on in their witness. They took courage from seeing each other witness. We've been praying for our country at this time with all the uncertainty and we don't know what's going to happen on Tuesday this week or even in a few weeks time when uh, Brexit is supposed to officially happen. There's been so much division and debate and, and strife. But if we want to see our country turned around, if we want to see a change to this culture of death that we're living in, if we want to see a real impact, if we want to see our churches growing again, we must become bold. We must be daring enough to witness. It takes boldness and by that I do not, of course, mean rudeness or argumentativeness or arrogance, but boldness, a holy courage to proclaim the gospel. And if we feel ourselves to be lacking in boldness, then we should do what the brothers in Rome did. We should take inspiration from the examples of other Christians who have been or are bold and courageous. Throughout church history, this is what has happened. This is how leaders have been raised up. This is how movements have taken place. By people being inspired by others. John Knox was mentored by George Wishart. And when Wishart was burnt at the stake for preaching the gospel in 1546, Knox was only all the more emboldened to become a preacher and a theologian himself. In 1555, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, two English reformers who had fought for the translation of the Bible into common English. They were about to be burnt at the stake for taking that stand. And Latimer said to Ridley, play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And in the years that followed, the Bible was eventually translated into English. Jim Elliot, who died on the mission field in Ecuador at the age of 28, he'd studied at Wheaton College in Illinois. And many of the students at Wheaton College in the years after that, inspired by his example, they went to the mission field in the 1950s and 60s. 
And if we lack courage today, friends, we need only read the latest issue of Asia Link or Barnabas Fund. We need only read what pastors in China have written to their congregations about why they've chosen to go to prison. And if we're not motivated to greater boldness even then, well, we should repent and ask for God's Spirit to change us. This is what matters above all else. It doesn't matter if people laugh at us. I mean, who are we? If they really got to know us, they'd find out plenty more reasons to laugh at us. It doesn't matter if people disown us. The psalmist says, if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. It doesn't even matter if people put us to death. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, says Paul. And so we need to pray for God's spirit to fill us with the boldness of a Knox or a Latimer or an Elliot or the unnamed unknown heroes today in Iran and North Korea and China. Courage is contagious. Surround yourself with the names and stories of bold believers and see if you catch what they had. Because it's through emboldened believers, vocal, courageous proclaimers of Christ that the gospel will advance. So the gospel will advance through unexpected opportunities. It will advance through emboldened believers. And then thirdly and finally, the gospel will even advance through uh, what I'm calling tonight pompous proclaimers. Pompous proclaimers. Uh, These emboldened believers that Paul mentions in verse 15, they're all doing the same thing. They're all preaching the gospel, the true Uh, The message, the the truth of Jesus Christ, that's what they're doing. But they're not all doing it for the same reasons. And they're not all doing it for the right reasons. Look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So he says there are plenty of gospel witnesses with the right message and the right motives. They're doing it out of love for Paul and love for, more importantly, for Jesus. But he goes on, the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And so he's saying that some witnesses have the right message but entirely the wrong motives. He says some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. Those are strong words. Some of the people preaching Christ, he says, are doing it for sinful motives because they're jealous. Jealous of who? Well, wisely, Paul doesn't go into too much detail here. It's Uh, It's always wise in those situations not to say more than needs to be said. He doesn't want the Philippians getting over annoyed or over anxious about this. He doesn't want them getting sidetracked and worked up about so-and-so in Rome who's doing this or that. But Paul does say in verse 17, he says, The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So these people seem to have been jealous of Paul. They didn't like Paul. Maybe they were jealous of his authority. He was an apostle. Presumably they weren't. Maybe they were jealous of all his attention. All these Christians in Rome, passionate, fired up to be gospel witnesses because of Paul. And they're a bit jealous that he's perhaps getting some praise for that. 
Whatever the reason, friends, these people weren't preaching about Jesus because they wanted to see people get saved from sin necessarily. They were preaching to draw attention to themselves. To be able to say, who needs Paul? Let him rot in prison. People are getting saved because we're preaching. They preached the right message, but for the wrong, selfish reasons. Can people today have the right message, but the wrong motives? Absolutely. And not just in the church, in all walks of life. I'm sure some of you have perhaps uh, worked alongside colleagues who perhaps have questionable motives for some of the things they say or do in the course of work. Think again of the political situation at the minute. Do you really think that every politician who's come out in the last few weeks and said, I fully support the Prime Minister, really does fully support the Prime Minister and wants the best for her? And sadly, some people who are professing Christians can have the right message but the wrong motives. The wider evangelical world today, especially in the West, is full of all kinds of weird and wonderful ideas. You get some churches doing things that we will never do by God's grace in this church because we simply do not believe that it's right. Gimmicky, numbers-driven, popularity-driven ways of presenting the gospel. Some of it makes you cringe. And yet, friends, what's Paul's attitude to these people? This is very humbling. Look at verse 18. What then? Or we would say, what about it? So what? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now that would not have been an easy thing for Paul to say. No doubt the attitude of these people Wanting in whatever twisted way they were thinking to hurt Paul. No doubt they did in some ways hurt him. And he would have been knocked back surely in some sense by what was going on. But we come back to what we said at the very beginning. Paul rejoiced in the advance of the gospel. Whether it was him preaching. Whether it was someone else preaching. Whether he got credit. Whether they got credit. He really did not care. If the gospel was advancing. Praise God. Now it's important to say that had these people been preaching a false gospel, Paul would not have said, I rejoice in it. And you can read Galatians, for example, when you go home and you'll see how strongly Paul opposed anyone who was preaching a false gospel, who didn't preach the truth about Jesus. But as long as someone was preaching the truth, that Jesus is God become a man who lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, was raised again on the third day, the only saviour. As long as that was the message, Paul didn't get too worried about the motives behind it. As long as the gospel advanced, so what? Paul would be happy. Paul would rejoice. Friends, if there are people around us who are proclaiming the right message with the wrong motives, they have God to answer to. We don't need to worry about them. But what about us? What's our motive for sharing the gospel? What's my motive for preaching the gospel? I had to ask myself that question this week. Uh, All preachers have to preach to themselves first. Am I preaching just because I like people listening to me? Am I preaching to make a name for myself? Am I preaching in hopes of 
having a bigger church than Pastor X, Y, or Z down the road. I don't believe that those are my motives. Pray that they never will be my motives. But we all have sinful hearts. We're capable of doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And so let's pray that we will proclaim Christ for two reasons and two reasons only. Because we love God and we love people. We love God and we love people. We love God who is awesome and holy, who has saved us from our sins and who commands us to witness. And so we obey him. And we witness because we love people and we don't want them to go to hell. As you come in here for parents and toddlers or youth club or CY, young people, as you apply for a summer team or go and serve on a camp, what's the motive? Is it mere duty? Is it to be seen? Is it some misguided form of works righteousness? Is it a good chance for some crack with Christian friends? Or are we doing these things because we love God and we love people? Whether it's because of our witness or the witness of some other person or some other church, if we live to see the gospel advancing at all, we should rejoice. We should rejoice. And so Paul has challenged us again tonight to consider what gives us joy. May it be this first and foremost, friends, to know that Through all our unexpected opportunities, through holy courage and boldness, and even through perhaps at times imperfect efforts or imperfect motives, that the name of the Lord Jesus would be proclaimed. And in that, may we too rejoice. Amen.